Welcome to the 26th episode of Tokyo Alumni Podcast. Today, our guest is a graduate of St. Mary's. He's a bilingual environmentalist and educator and consultant based in Tokyo. He's the founder of Wimori, an ongoing, profit, ongoing nonprofit project to build an app that makes protection and restoration of forests around the world fun and easy and accessible for all. Uh, they recently started a Kickstarter. We'll get into that a bit more later. He's a professional speaker with experience giving over 200 plus speeches and lectures about SDGs, climate change, and other topics on sustainability across Japan. He's a consultant and project manager for various environmental and educational projects. And he helped launch the Japan branch of 350.org. We'll get into that a bit more later, as well as the Spiral Club, a community media platform with the aim of making environmental awareness mainstream in Japan. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being on. So let's start with, you know, what's going on right now, something quite exciting, right? You guys kicked off the Kickstarter. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what is going on with this Kickstarter? Um, I think you guys are five days in. So what is going on there? Yeah, so um, it was in the introduction that you uh, so kindly shared. Um, right now, the initiative that I'm pouring as much energy and time as possible is called Wimori. And it's, a, it's an app that puts the power to protect and restore forests around the world right into people's hands. And this is really, really important. Uh, well, protecting and restoring forests is really, really important um, because it's a powerful way to address both climate change and biodiversity loss, which the World Economic Forum in 2019 um, listed as two of their top five risks that our world is facing today. Um, so we provide a tangible way for people to address these two issues. Um, we make it very actionable by placing these actions right at people's hands. Um, and that's what Wimori is. We have the concept down, we have the designs down, um, we have a brilliant team of volunteers as well as a, um, a core team. And now we need to kickstart the, 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 kickstart the development. So we're on Kickstarter, yeah, to, to really kind of, as our first step out into the world, to say, hi, we're Wimori, and this is where we're at, and we need this money to create the app, and we would love for you to support us. So, yeah, that's where we're at, and that's, the, uh, that's what the Kickstarter is about. That sounds like an awesome project, and this app, it seems like you guys have a lot of support, you know, from these groups in regards to, you know, what you return to the initial investors of this project. Um, can you explain to us a little bit about that, like about the washi and the various goods people can get when they support this project? Absolutely. So I think you've seen a lot of Kickstarters, ca Kickstarter campaigns, you know, either through messages that your friends may have sent you saying, please support our campaign or um, on your wall on social media saying, I started a Kickstarter campaign. And you know, obviously the most important thing of a Kickstarter campaign in a Kickstarter campaign is the idea itself. If, if that sucks, then you're just, you know, there's no chance you're going to succeed. But uh, I, I, I've seen a lot of these campaigns. I've followed a lot of these campaigns. And I've seen that in many cases, uh, the returns are crap. Um, basically, they're saying, you know, we've worked so hard on this and you probably like our idea and you're probably my friend. So you better support me. You know, it's uh, that's been the kind of approach of most campaigns. But uh, we didn't want to do that. We really wanted to create returns or rewards that embodied our values, our core values that could be genuinely appreciated for anybody who um, purchased these rewards. We have a T-shirt, which is, you know, kind of a, 
almost like a traditional thing for any Kickstarter campaign to do. But we've, we've worked with an artist who's worked with brands like Nike and um, Sony Music uh, to create the design for the T-shirt. So it's, it's a really cool shirt. And also the shirt itself is um, very much in line with our theme of sustainability because it's made using uh, cloth that is 100% upcycled. What upcycled means is that it's using cloth that would have otherwise gone to the landfill or the incinerator. So when you make a t-shirt, you have a roll of fabric and then you cut out the shape of the t-shirt and then you stitch it, which means there's always off cuts. Uh, Off cuts are the fabrics that are outside of the cuts that were not used. This t-shirt that we're uh, giving out as a reward 100% 100% only uses those offcuts and it has been restitched. It's waste free and in fact it's made out of high quality fabric that otherwise wouldn't have been used. The other reward that we have uh, which we're really really excited about is the um, the washi posters. So I think many people in the alumni community uh, who would be watching this they you know have spent a lot of time in Japan that you might be aware of washi and what it is but it's a uh, It literally just means Japanese paper, Um, but it's made in a very, very specific way that has been being uh, made in this way since 1,500 years ago, at least. Uh, So it's a really, really long history. I was on the search for the most sustainable paper that we can possibly find um, since we knew we wanted to do either a poster or or a short booklet or something of the sort for this project as our reward. And we arrived at Washi because it's simply the most sustainable paper that is out there. And what we did was we, uh, we invited artists, we uh, connected, spoke to, invited artists to create designs around the theme of uh, regenerating the planet. And we're printing those artworks onto this Washi paper, Japanese um, paper, um, to really send out the message of, you know, let's start regenerating the earth. And we're printing that on this paper, Washi, which is very, very, which is well, very connected to our theme of regeneration because one, by working with local artisans from Japan, we're regenerating uh, what's at current um, trends is destined to become a lost art form. We're also, well, so washi is also extremely sustainable and also regenerative in and of itself because it's, paper that's made out of fibers that combine together when they're dried. But you can soak them in water again to kind of disconnect the fibers. But then if you dry it again, it becomes paper again. So washi is this reusable regenerative paper which you can melt and then bring back, melt and bring back. So it's, it's like the original sustainable technology. It's really, really fantastic. But in our case, we wanted to take that one step further and really, really etch the concept of regeneration in there. So what we did was we worked with uh, local artisans and we planted seeds inside the washi paper. Um, And this is only for Japanese audiences because you can't ship seeds overseas. So anybody who's in Japan who supports our crowdfunding campaign and purchases the washi poster gets the regenerative version. But in the regenerative version, we have uh, seeds planted in the washi. Um, So if you put that in water or put it in the soil, um, it sprouts out with life to kind of, you know, for us to communicate the message of, you know, let's really regenerate the earth together. Wow. So the seeds, do you have to like 
water it like you'd water a flower or how, how does that how does that even work this is sort of blowing my mind you're saying the poster the po- po- stuff grows from the poster yeah yeah so you know i almost enjoy the dilemma that exists here but um so it's a poster with a really beautiful artwork printed on it um but it also has seeds planted in it so you can either you know cut off a corner or you can just take the entire poster and submerge it under um a really thin a layer of water and leave it for a few days and then it will start sprouting. That sounds pretty cool. That sounds like a pretty cool idea. But as you said, yeah, there's sort of a dilemma, huh? That it, you, you, by putting in the water, you, you can't really put it on a wall. But Exactly, yeah. But I almost kind of, I don't know, I find that almost enjoyable. You know, you're like, oh, what should I do with it? Should I plant it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sounds pretty cool. And I mean, I really also want to unpack this idea of upcycling. Quite embarrassingly, when I, I think I read it on the website, maybe three mm-hmm. days ago, and that was the first time in my life I've actually heard of that term. I actually thought maybe it was a typo. I was like, maybe he meant to say recycled, you know, it's just recycled. Because, uh-huh. you know, you uh-huh. hear about recycle, recycle all your life. And so why, why is this upcycling not as mainstream as it is today? So what are sort of the, I'm assuming they're economic, but what, what are the barriers that are stopping people from, you know, using more upcycled? material well i think there's there must be a lot there um it also d- depends on which materials you're talking about for example if you're talking about you know plastic which is i think the subject of most conversations around recycling you know what i'm saying is when people talk about recycling i think they're usually talking about trash or plastic bottles or glass and with glass um you can pretty much make glass out of melted glass But when it comes to plastic, it's constantly degrading with every new process that plastic goes through. So with pet bottles, for example, it's not as simple as you can melt it and create pet bottles again. You you create the pet bottle and then you can maybe chemically recycle it, which means you you, you break it back down into the the elemental components and then recombine them into creating a new sort of plastic but usually it degenerates in that process. What I'm trying to say is that a plastic pet bottle can only be used to create something that's lesser than a plastic pet bottle. It cannot be then recreated into an even stronger plastic so you can make um, building walls out of it. You know, it's, it's very difficult to do that. Recycling kind of implies for people who are in the environment world that it's a, uh, it's, it's a process of degeneration. It's a process of slowing down the pace at which the plastic eventually ends up in the incinerator or ends up in the landfill. The reason is because you might be able to turn that plastic pet bottle into pellets or back into fibers that can maybe create something new. But uh, ultimately, like that is going to have to um, being thrown away. So in our case, it, we refer to it as an upcycle as upcycling because we used offcut fabrics, which you know most offcut fabrics have no value. They're considered as waste that are a byproduct of the production system and are therefore usually just deposited out of the factory to be you know just used for waste. But by giving that a new life and turning that into something, in our case creating a t-shirt with an artist's design on it and um, having new value, which, you know, we are turning it into something that people would want to wear. People would want to take back into their hands. uh, We're allowing the value to increase again. So 
that's the difference between recycling and upcycling. Uh, upcycling. Interesting. So, so stuff like plastic, basically there, there is no pathway to upcycling. So you mentioned fabrics as one, right? Offcut fabrics as a potential, you know, product or potential um, item to upcycle. Are there any other products that, that you've come across that you've noticed that, you know, have potential to be upcycled? Absolutely. For example, in timber production, there's a lot of wood that um, isn't used. Uh, it gets cut down and then you usually use the, the center core of the wood because that's where it's hardest, uh, which leaves a lot of the outer layers of the wood unused and they're cheaper in value. So a lot of the times, you know, they're not they're, They just go to waste. But this can be used for any multitude of purposes from creating, I don't know, little name cards. Uh, to creating um, your Pasmo case or creating iPhone cases. So if you start looking at all the things that we put to waste, which we can give more life to, yes, um, upcycling um, can happen everywhere. I think when people think about the environment and, you know, like, what can they do? They often feel overwhelmed. I mean, I, I do personally, you know, it's like, what can I do? And it was only recently where for me, a big change has been um, as a teacher, I drink a lot of water and um, I'm kind of spoiled at my school that if I forget water, they sell water bottles. So uh, there was a period where I was a little bit maybe more forgetful than I should be. So I was buying, you know, about two, three water bottles. You know, shaming someone into doing stuff is usually not the best thing. But I had a few mm -hmm. colleagues who would kind of shame me every time they saw me with a new water bottle. <laughs> so then I just bought a few water bottles and I realized, oh, you know, this is much easier, actually. So mm -hmm. I feel like in a very small way, I was like, oh, this is what people mean. Like, it is not that hard. What would you encourage for, you know, someone like me who, you know, maybe isn't ready to switch from a car to a bicycle or something, you know, like not a, this big change. What are the small changes people can make? Right. Um, well, there's loads of different things, you know. Um, I think it starts from kind of paying attention to maybe the areas of your life areas of your life which you are allowing to run unconsciously. What are you doing with your trash? Um, what are you doing with your electricity? What are you doing around your mobility? And a lot of these are just you know, routines in our everyday life. So I think to be more environmental is essentially a journey into um, peering into each of these things which we have um, set up as routines in our life and questioning them again, saying, is this the right choice when I think beyond the convenience or when I think beyond what I can see in front of me immediately? In peering into these things, the really important thing to, um, to keep in mind is that everything has a story that comes before and a story that happens after. What I mean by that is, let's just take the example of the pencil that I have right here in my hand. For me, the use value of this is that I can write with it. And I discover it at a store and I see it, I like it, either the design or its utility, I buy it and then I use it. Um, but the story that exists before that is the story of how did it end up in that shelf in the first place? And the story that exists afterwards is what's gonna happen to this when I dispose of it or when I get sick of the design or one reason or another. And for us urban dwellers, we have, have been so conditioned to only live with the story that exists in front of us. 
and we don't think of the story that came before it or after it, which is where the environmental issues exist. Um, so the same goes for, for example, plastic bottles, right? Like we have been so accustomed to simply pay attention to the story that exists in front of us, which is have this CC lemon in this beautiful orange bottle or yellow bottle or whatever, and you want it and you have it. But um, what social media has, uh, has exposed us to is the story afterwards, which is that, oh my God, our beaches are covered in pet bottles. And that has also initiated a lot of movements to uncover the story that comes before it, which is that we're using so much oil towards creating these pet bottles. And we can't really continue that in a world where everybody's saying we need to do something about climate change. So when you start paying attention to a story before it and after it, I think the way that you, you know, you realize that you have been basing your routines around a very imperfect story of what exists around you. So that is um, the exploration at hand here. Um, when, you know, I don't really think it's about shaming or it's about, um, you know, doing it for because you feel good. But I think it's essentially uh, 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 about having a more holistic picture of the things that surround us or make us our everyday lives. Um, having said that, so, so I guess first and foremost, that's what I would like to encourage, um, that it's really important to, you know, yeah, like think about um, what are the small things that I can do. But the more important thing is to start considering uh, the story before and after the things that surround you. Um, so having said that, some really, really simple things that anybody can start with um, is change the electricity that you're using at home. This is really powerful. If we let things just simply be and you live in Tokyo like me, you are contracted with Tokyo Electricity, so TEPCO. And a lot of their electricity is generated using gas and uh, coal, uh, which are very um, greenhouse gas intensive. Coal is the most carbon intensive form of energy and gas is less carbon intensive, but it's very, very methane intensive, which in the span of 20 years has up to 100 times more warming potential than um, carbon dioxide. So it's really important that less people are using these energy sources to power their homes. And you can do that now by choosing your electricity supplier. And there's suppliers out there that supply renewable energy. Think about your diet. You know, scientists from all over the world are coming together, researching all avenues of, of climate change and what action looks like um, and how effective these actions are. One of the unequivocal um, uh, consensuses almost that are that's starting to develop within the scientific field through just a mountain of research is that eating meat, unfortunately, is one of the most damaging things we can do to our planet, which we do every single day. And the reason is, and I'll try to keep myself brief on this subject, but uh, is because a lot of the meat that we consume is connected to deforestation. So that's one reason why meat is so carbon intensive and has such a high uh, ecological footprint. The other thing is simply meat is extremely energy intensive. So to create a cow for our consumption 
requires so much input in food, in water, in all sorts of different things. I mean, I think you can imagine, you know, like you and I, we eat every day. And sometimes it's mind-boggling how much we need to eat to keep on going every single day, right? And think about a cow. I mean, it's three times our size at least, and we're consuming millions of cows every day. So the amount of energy and input that requires is just gargantuan. It's huge. Um, It's so huge that over 75% of the farmland that is being cultivated today is somehow connected to cattle production. Of course, you know, the old kind of stop using, you know, use less pet bottles or use less disposable things in general is very powerful. Riding less airplanes is very powerful. And Wimori is um, suggesting another action uh, for people um, that's also very, very powerful. And this is uh, protecting and restoring forests. Um, So, you know, you spoke about what are little things that we can do. And it's really important that people are engaging in little actions because that really, even if the action itself is little, um, it's a way for everybody to be more mindful in, in their everyday life. And that's, you know, the basic condition that's necessary in creating a more sustainable future. So at Wimori, we're trying to, well, we're creating this platform right now which would allow anybody to protect and restore forests from their fingertips, which is a really, really powerful way for anybody to take action. Yeah, that's so there's a lot of things there to unpack, right? Talked a bit about energy, the consumption of meat, the daily use of disposable materials. So I want to sort of track back to the part about um, the use of energy, Mm because the point about nuclear energy, especially being half Japanese, is something that really has been a topic that I feel, um, I'm not quite sure how I feel about. Because uh, on one hand, I feel like there was a point in my life where uh, people had convinced me that nuclear energy is bad, right? Because it's sort of this connection of, I don't don't even know how to describe, but you know, and there's this connection to also nuclear weapons, although they're not necessarily directly uh, correlated at all, but there's sort of this weird connection. But then there was the earthquake, you know, in March, which sort of exposed the dangers. But then other people have informed me, well, nuclear energy in other countries aren't as dangerous as the nuclear energy in Japan because they had, you know, fail-safe systems. And also they don't have the tsunamis they have here. So, yeah, when it comes to nuclear energy, uh, what, where is, you know, your position as well as sort of like other environmentalists? Because I feel like it's a very decisive, de- sorry, not decisive, uh, div- uh, div- divisive issue. Yeah, I think it's... Uh... It's a particularly difficult topic to um, discuss in Japan um, because of our historic trauma over uh, nuclear energy, whether or just nuclear technology in general, whether that's um, the bombs that were dropped in Nagasaki or Hiroshima or the, um, the catastrophe that we've seen in Fukushima. I think nuclear is a topic that's extremely triggering um for many people um and the emotion that is triggered you know is is vast and um it it really depends from person to person but uh it's a very sticky subject um for good reason in the environmentalist world uh if you could call it that there's many differing positions regarding nuclear 
Some say it's not necessary. Some say that it is necessary. Some say that it's not a good short-term investment at all. Some say that it's, again, a necessary short-term solution. Some say that it's simply the best solution, um, while others say that it's the absolute um, banality of evil. It's, it's the most evil option for us to take. It's a very, very, yeah, it's a difficult topic. And my standing on this, and I'm quite a fundamentalist when it comes to energy, that I will not say that my opinion is representative of either Wimori or kind of any entity that I've represented in the past, and it's my personal opinion. But I think first and foremost, the place to look at is the amount of energy that we're consuming. Just we're, we're on a constant incline in terms of energy demand, and the struggle has been to supply that in a sustainable manner. My understanding is that we're already kind of operating in an overdraft, which is where we're requiring energy than we're capable of supplying, you know, at sustainable scales. Um, so, you know, if you've, you know, you and I, we're from Inta, we've, you know, had our fair shares of drinking in Shibuya and like all that kind of things. But um, those lights are on 24 hours of the day, those neon lights. Um, same goes for Shinjuku, Kabukicho, all the billboards that surround the city. And if you remember right after March 11th, um, those billboards were ordered to be switched off. And that reduced the amount of light pollution as well as consumption of energy uh, down to unprecedented um, levels. And I don't know how people felt about that, but I think there was a lot of peace that was regained back into the city landscape. So I think the first question to ask is, is our task simply to replace the amount of energy that we're using or supply the or replace the supply of our energy to more renewable sources within a kind of destructive system or should we be thinking about reducing the amount of energy that we're using in the first place and i think that question is the most important thing for us to ask right now what does it mean to be using energy within sustainable boundaries i think is the bigger question to be asked and in the case of Japan, and I can only speak in, about Japan really because, you know, just situations differ from country to country when it comes to nuclear. But I think in the case of Japan, I think it's, if not the most, one of the worst countries to have nuclear energy. The reason is because um, we're one of the most active volcanic countries. Um, we're, we have one of the longest coastlines of, in the world. Um, comparable to Chile, um, just in terms of coastlines, which are prone to, we're also, you know, we, we have record number of earthquakes every year. We're basically a hot spot for earthquakes, which could trigger tsunamis on the coastlines that we have. So Japan is the worst country, in my opinion, to have earth, uh, nuclear energy because there's just so much risk. And on top of that, uh, the Japanese government likes to use um, the narrative of uh, of self-defense a lot, um, and in doing that, they they highlight the tensions arising from North Korea and China. And so, you know, we we are positioned in a just happen to be in a place of the world where there is certain, you know, geopolitical um, tensions. In the worst case scenario, um, and they do want to shoot a missile right at our country. What is the most obvious place to 
to you know detonate that. Um, if you want to do the worst thing possible to your neighboring country, would be to detonate it to a nuclear power plant because as we've seen in Fukushima, um, doing so has you know like people um, potentially. I mean, if there's a meltdown, people within a 250 kilometer radius have to evacuate. That was very nearly the case in the case of Fukushima. So, you know, we're literally carrying a bomb in 47 different locations of this country. So, you know, these are all things to consider when you think about let's do renewable. I mean, let's go nuclear energy. And it just seems to me like in the case of Japan, it's not, it's not at all a good idea. And so uh, the, the obvious space to move forward in is increasing renewable energy capacity. And in a way that I think should also meet halfway with the decrease of energy demand. Um, so that's my standpoint when it comes to Japan. That's it. Yeah, it's interesting that about the, uh, I didn't even think about the military aspect of it and the geopolitical situation Japan's in. I appreciate your, your candid, honest opinion too, though. In the beginning when you were like, there's people that like it, there's people that don't like it. I was worried that was going to be your only point. And I was like, okay, he's playing it really safe here. Um, but yeah, that, that's really, that's really intriguing to hear um, that, you know, you have a strong point about how you feel in regards to nuclear energy in, in Japan. So when I hear about these various options of alternative energy, it seems like wind energy, apart from it being really ugly and needing space, and maybe that's why, it's, it's been sort of a difficult one to implement in Japan seems to be like the one to go for. Cause obviously wind is like, it's like wind, you know, like no one's, no one is like caring about, you know, you're hogging too much wind, you know, or that wind is. So is that assertion correct? And, you know, do you see wind energy to be something to continue to increase around the world? Absolutely. Uh, renewable energy technology is decreasing in cost of implementation and therefore energy generation, you know, like exponentially. It's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to generate energy from solar and wind. Particularly for solar, it's getting extremely. In Japan, we have a huge coastline with strong winds. We have a lot of mountains with mountaintops that have strong winds. So wind energy potential, from what I know, is huge. So... Yeah, like wind energy definitely has huge uh, potential to generate a lot of electricity in Japan. There are certain barriers. One is, for example, having to create new grids that stretch to the top of mountains or that stretch out into the open water. And of course, the, uh, the, the challenge of costs, uh, because it's still relatively expensive in Japan to um, implement these technologies. And then there's the, uh, there's the challenge of, you know, local communities really not enjoying the, the idea of the, the coastline that they grew up in, the beaches that they used to swim in, suddenly um, parading these huge wind turbines, um, you know, all of a sudden. It's that kind of change in the landscape which wind energy requires is is a cause for a lot of opposition another really interesting case that i've heard um our house uh, my family used to get vegetables from uh, a farmer in aomori um however he's moved his farm because he lived near uh, a large new wind turbine energy generating uh, well generator 
And because of the low frequency noise, this, uh, it was a he and a she, but they no longer um, could stand it. So they moved to their farm. And this is something that's not as frequently talked about, but it seems to be very real. Or it was my first encounter with significant negative externalities of wind energy that people had to relocate. So this is also true. This is also real. So that's also something we have to consider and come to terms with. But those are the challenges facing wind energy. But in terms of generation capacity in Japan, it's huge. And so if, if these challenges, um, particularly the challenge of local communities not favoring wind energy can be overcome, I think uh, it's definitely something that's worth investing in and is, you know, has a lot of promise in terms of growth. Solar energy, you can say relatively similar things in Japan, um, except that it's cheaper than wind, I believe. And, you know, the technology is getting very cheap as well. So it's generally considered to be a good, stable investment. Um, but the opposition comes from local communities who, you know, don't want their local kind of, you know, side of a certain mountain being deforested for the sake of putting up solar panels. Um, or their rice paddy fields all being converted into solar power um, fields. Um, so, you know, there's these local oppositions which are quite frequent when it comes to expanding renewable energy potential. So then, again, this brings us to this really difficult point of tension where it's, you know, we need to pivot towards these renewable energy sources um, in order to transition our grid from uh, CO2 intensive to CO2 free, carbon free. And, and the tension that I'm speaking of here is that there's a lot of local opposition for good reason. And in my opinion, this stems from uh, the need to supply the insane amount of energy which we're demanding. So at the end of the day, for me, it all returns to the point of, do we need all this energy? But yeah, to, to your, the simple question to your answer is, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of um, wind energy potential and solar energy potential. Does that directly translate to implementation? Not necessarily. Yeah, that thing about low, low uh, sound frequencies, that, that's quite freaky. I, I've read a bit about that too. And it seems like that's why, unfortunately, all the projects do end up going to sort of the places with the least population you know, people who are, you know, farthest away from metropolitan areas, and they tend to be almost sacrificed. But you're saying that, you know, we we're maybe asking the wrong questions, that maybe the right question is, you know, how can we cut down energy overall, so that we, even if we do have to use wind energy and solar energy, you know, minimize those uses. So um, yeah, I want to say that it's, it's I wouldn't necessarily say it's the more important question, but it's a necessary question. Um, the question of do we need all this energy? As, as you know, I think it's a very honest question to ask if we are truly going to strive for a sustainable future. Well, I want to sort of rewind the clock. We've talked a bit about Wimori, stuff you do now. Where did all of this begin? Because um, I'm sure people are familiar with like um, Greta, a famous environmental activist. She's like quite young. I, I think she's an early teen. Uh, for you... When, when did this all begin? Like when, when did you decide that this was going to be your passion, maybe even your career? Was this something as early as your teenage years or was it something that happened a bit later on? Well, I think it's, um, 
you know, with, with anybody who's uh, really kind of devoted to something and you ask them, where did it all begin? Um, they probably have a hard time answering that because every part of their life has led up to um, them pursuing their passion. And in my case, uh, as young as I can remember, I was um, being taken to these beautiful places in Japan and around the world, uh, thanks to my parents. You know, I, every spring and summer, we would go to Hakuba or, you know, Okinawa. And I would also be taken to places like Australia or Hawaii or um, Southeast Asia, like Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Bali, Philippines, Vietnam, all these really beautiful places around the world. And, you know, like, like most of us, when we're a kid, we just really love nature. It's beautiful. There's, um, there's a lot of mysterious things like bugs and, you know, like all sorts of different fish and coral and this kind of, you know, so, so I just very naturally developed a, a deep, deep love for, for the environment when I was young. Um, particularly uh, pivotal experience in my past is when I was uh, homestaying um, at a diving shop over the summer when I was um, between uh, 14 to 18 years old uh, uh, when everybody was out um, in their SAT camps or study camps or whatever camps in America. I was um, working at a diving shop every summer, every single day, um, diving or snorkeling in the waters of uh, Okinawa. And I developed a really deep love for what I saw. And it just very naturally stuck with me that this is not something we should destroy because it has such inherent value and beauty to it. Um, later when I was in university uh, and I started really kind of peering deeper into the subject of uh, environmental issues, particularly the history of the growth of human society and the trade-off that has had in the destruction of natural environments, you know, contemporary issues around um, the tensions between development and environmental degradation. I was very much kind of hurt in, 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 uh, due to the discovery that I had made, which is that our world is um, very much built in a way that uh, implies environmental destruction. So human activity implies environmental degradation. And until that point, basically, I was living my life saying, I love nature, you know, we all love nature, and let's go for a hike, we all love it, just to, just to find out uh, that I was actually, in reality, living in a world which was completely at odds with the preservation of nature. Um, it was, in fact, operating in a way that environmental degradation was a byproduct of every economic and human activity in within our current system. So that was really painful. And I think that's when I took it upon myself to try to do what I could within my own means, own means to change the situation. It's, it's, you know, it's a huge topic. It's a huge problem that I know that a single person can't do anything about it. Um, but somebody has to try. So that was me in my first or second year in university, really kind of waking up to um, the realities of the current system and the, and the paradigm in which we live and feeling a very deep sense of a mission or, 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 or discovery of a vocation where I really felt that I had to do something about it if I truly wanted to protect that which I loved, which was nature and the natural environment. So that was, yeah, I mean, a university. It's just kind of been since then. Interesting. So in university, you were saying how, you know, 
you saw the world around you as this place that is not conducive to you know preservation of all these beautiful sites you visited is this around the same period where you launched 350.org or were those projects later on right so at first i think i went through this sense of powerlessness and a sense of defeat um realizing that my ideals and uh the systems of this world were complete odds and that was hurtful and it brought me into a period of um you know, a little bit of a sun, like, you know, a a deep sunken period where I'm not really sure what I can do, feeling that I don't really have agency to change anything. Um, But I slowly discovered that action and a buildup of small successes is really the only antidote to the pain that I was feeling. And so I became more and more active until I met uh, somebody who was just about to or had just started launching 350.org's Japan chapter. And I was invited uh, in as the second staff member. And so I, as a university student, really started to devote a lot of my time and energy and passion towards um, bringing this organization, which was very active around the world, to Japan to create the Japan chapter. It, it's, uh, it wasn't parallel, but it was very connected. But yes, so that's kind of the sequence of events there. Interesting. And then so you, this 350.org Japan chapter, it, it gets going. Um, I remember seeing, I think it was in Yahoo News or there's some Japanese media, there were some marches and I had this vivid memory of you like in a earth suit. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about that? Like what was that march about? What, what was that idea? Because I remember looking at that and I was thinking like he's, he, this is very smart. Like, like he was thinking that, I'm assuming you're thinking that would get more press and it worked. Right, because the press did pick up on it. Because there was this guy wearing this big Earth suit, and I'll 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 put it somewhere like on the the right top, <laughs> I mean, a picture of that as well as as a link to the article. But yeah, cool. Yeah, so I think um, and this relates to my exploration in Wimori as well. But um, I've always been thinking about and searching about ways to motivate people to devote a larger or a little larger portion of their brains um, towards uh, environmental issues or to devote a little bit more of their time towards taking action. In essence, uh, how can I bring, how can I motivate people to care or how can I motivate people to act? And the earth man, which was uh, the photo that you saw, which was me in this big suit of earth was a part of that exploration. Um, It seemed that one of the things that, the Japanese environmental sector was suffering at the time was getting attention from people, um, getting attention from the public, getting attention from the media. And that was because they were setting their um, initial hurdle to, uh, to, to participation action far too high. Um, so what can we do to lower that hurdle of participation and action? And the Earthman was one of those ways to do that because Um, you know, it's just a silly character and it makes it a lot more approachable. And, you know, it's something that you might want to share with your friends. It's something that is um, a nice photo op for the media. So for all these different reasons, um, the Earthman was something that I was doing right in the beginning of 350 as kind of an awareness raising tool and a motivational tool for people out there who have maybe considered environmental issues as something too distant or too difficult or too far or too um, serious uh, for them to consider. 
Yeah, it's and and the Earthman, if I'm not mistaken, I haven't seen him since. Will we ever see the Earthman come back? Well, actually, um, the fascinating thing is that I started Earthman, um, you know, around eight years ago or seven, six years ago when I had just uh, joined 350, and it was my first project. Um, and now we have uh, a whole legacy of Earthmans, and if you attend any climate march today, you'll find the Earthman walking in the front row. Um, wow. So. <laughs> So now we have about, um, I think about 17 or 18 people have represented Earthman. Uh, I'm sure actually more. Um, so yeah, Earthman is very much alive and um, the legacy continues. <laughs> wow. It's kind of like Ultraman, huh? It goes on to the next, <laughs> the yeah. next guy, huh? That's really cool. And um, I want to move gears now to Spiral Club. Okay. So the Spiral Club is defined as a community media platform with the aim of making environmental awareness mainstream in Japan. And I think it's a good segue how we've just talked about how a, a big issue is just simply getting that attention, right? Especially being, uh, you know, being half American for me, I feel like environmental issues are c constantly brought up, especially in California. But in Japan, I, I feel like it's just never, it's never really at the forefront because I don't know if it's not loud enough or if, if you know, media doesn't pay attention enough. So I'm assuming it's conducive to what you guys do. So you know, how did this start up? And um, what type of activities are you guys involved in um, today? Right, so um, Spiral Club was something that came right after 350. Um, I had left 350 and I was embarking on my own journeys uh, of, okay, what's next for me? And education was very much at the, the front and center of my mind. Um, as, well, as well as uh, awareness raising, which kind of came hand in hand. And the reason for that was uh, because coming out of 350, after I'd spent about three years there, I realized that the biggest challenge that we're facing is the lack of awareness. So 350 is an organization that mobilizes people towards action. But what do you need before um, mobilizing people to action is a sense of awareness of the issue at hand. You can't convince somebody to take action if they don't know anything about it. But in Japan, it seemed like the, uh, there was not enough people who cared or knew about the issue in the first place, that there wasn't really the ingredients uh, prepared for people to catapult into action. So that's why leaving 350, I decided to focus my energy on awareness raising and um, education. And Spiral Club was one of the projects that came out of uh, that exploration to uh, do those two things. And by that time, I had people around me who were in a similar age as mine, um, in the same generation, younger and older, of course, um, but you know, roughly speaking in early 20s, uh, that each had a lot to say about environment, a lot to say about sustainability in all sorts of different fields. However, their stories were not being shared out into the public in a way that was convincing or, or, or relatable. At the same time, uh, we couldn't rely on the media um, or we couldn't really rely on um, the existing environmental organizations because they had a very um, predefined way of talking about these issues, which I think was, again, creating barriers for entry for people because the media was, actually, was either only portraying the very political dynamics that were going on around the environment, which is very hard to relate with. Environment, environmental minister says this, says that. You know, like, what are you going to do about that? Or in the, uh, in the nonprofit sector, you know, they're really thinking about, oh, well, the Japanese government said 26% uh, 
climate, uh, you know, CO2 reduction by 2030, but we need to meet uh, 45% by 2030, you know, you know, like who's going to care about that? Um, so yeah, was, yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's, it seems like what, what can you do, right? It, so it, it just seems so big. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what was a way that we can make this more approachable and relatable for people um, was, was the question. And um, I think people like me, other people who are like me, who are in the same age range, who are even younger, um, just simply talking about it as something they care about um, would be much more uh, uh, powerful in creating empathy, sympathy, um, interest in the topics which we care about. So that was the idea behind Spiral Club is that let's share our own stories. So we'll, we'll definitely link up the, the Spiral Club's older, uh, the link as well as maybe if there's any specific articles you especially recommend, we, we can put it right, right in the little description doobly-doo. So um, I like to usually wrap it up with what's to come up next, next few years, next few decades. So um, if you could tell us you know, what's, what's on the horizon. I know Wimori is obviously you know, probably the most immediate thing. But maybe apart from Wimori, what else is coming up in the next few years? Well, if you don't mind, I'd love to talk a little bit more about Wimori. And Wimori is a platform that allows... So I think I talked a little bit about my exploration being in how to engage more people into taking, you know, caring or taking action. And Wimori is um, definitely uh, along that exploration. As you mentioned today, you know, these issues feel so big that you don't really know what to do. And that sense of powerlessness or sense of indecisiveness, you know, sucks. I've been there as well. Um, what Wimori does, it, it provides you a really, really easy way to take action. And the action that we provide is also one where you can be assured that it would have a high impact. And it would not just have a high impact, it would also have an immediate impact um, that's also tangible. So Wimori um, provides that to anybody anywhere around the world with a smartphone. Uh, literally with the tap of your fingers, you can protect and restore forests all over the world. How it works is you are able to fund projects that are run by frontline communities um, all over the world that are either putting forests under protection so they're defended from deforestation or creating new forests by planting um, a diverse species of trees in tropical areas around this world, uh, which is where deforestation is happening the fastest and where reforestation has the highest impact in terms of sucking more carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, we need forests to solve climate change because they suck up, according to some statistics, up to a third of the carbon dioxide which we as humans emit into the atmosphere every year. They're also where Earth's biodiversity literally exists because 80% of the species that live on land live in the forests. Um, and they also supply clean water, lots of jobs, a lot of food. Uh, they're just indispensable to the survival of humans all over the world. We've really worked hard on this and that we have a really solid community that we're working with. We have volunteers from over 10 countries around the world who you know, really love the idea, really wanted to uh, contribute in some way. So we have teams that are working on writing articles. We have teams that are um, working on outreaching to influencers. We have this just brilliant team of really intelligent people who really want to make a difference behind it, um, as well as, of course, my uh, undivided passion and attention. And Wimori is one way in which everybody can participate in regenerating the earth. Uh, you can protect and restore forests through Wimori, which is something that us as you know citizens of this planet 
can literally at the tap of our fingers uh, contribute to a re more regenerative system, a more regenerative uh, flow of capital. But the ultimate goal or the ultimate vision is to create a society which is regenerative and therefore sustainable. That's, that's exciting plans, man. A million trees. And as you said, the tip of your finger, I can directly relate to that. I think people, you know, people are innately lazy, right? Like I'm lazy to a certain degree. And um, I'm sure people have had those experiences on Facebook where they say so-and-so uh, for their birthday would like to collect donations for the blah, blah, you know, uh, thing. And, and for, for years, I actually, you know, I'd be like, oh, it's a good idea. And then I click on it and they, be, they make me fill something out and they'll say, put in your credit card information. And I go, man, actually, like, I need to go, you know, I go somewhere. But then once I put my information in, Facebook kept it. So now whenever someone has their birthday and it's like, you know, do you want to donate to the San Francisco homeless shelter? It's, it's a click now for me. It's a click. So it's like now I'm kind of like, OK, like, you know, it's just for a good cause. My friend is directly involved. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm excited to see where, where, where the, this app is going to go. You said a million trees in is it three years. Yes, less than. All right. Well, I, I really hope um, you guys meet, meet that goal. And hopefully I can be mm -hmm. part of that, too, when, I, when we get that app. And um, I know it's still in the making, but is there any rough idea when, when the app will be available? Yeah, I think um, it will be available for beta testing around uh, September. Um, and from there, we'll go through, you know, a month or two of beta testing and then, you know, la launch with a big bang. So, yeah, anybody viewing this that's interested in that um, would love to uh, engage you in our beta testing. Awesome. So, yeah, the beta testing coming up soon. So really appreciate you joining us today for the 26th episode of Tokyo Alumni Podcast. May I'll make sure to include in the links, um, you know, the various anything from the spiral articles to the Kickstarter uh, as well as the Earthman article, if I can find it, it's somewhere. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> it was nice catching up uh, with you, Ian. And uh -huh. uh, yeah, I wish you best of luck, and I'll I'll continue to follow the, the Kickstarter and see see how it goes. Yeah, thank you so much. This was uh, really fun. Thank you so much for your great questions. Um, and if there's any questions that either you or the audience may have later around whether it be our current project. We Mori or anything else, I'm very happy to answer. So thank you again for the time. And yeah, I hope you have a beautiful day. Um.